This is the Building Management Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. As people become more comfortable in the home building automation space, they want to be able to take this commercial as well. We're starting to ask that question, where is my water coming from and what's the quality of it? While we are not recession-proof, it is a recession-insulated industry, so that regardless of the ups and downs in the stock market, if these manufacturers, these plants, and these entities want to stay open, they need water. Renovations complete. Let's enter the building. All right, hello and welcome to the second episode of the Building Management Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. We have a lot of great content and I can't wait to dive in and bring all of this good stuff to you today. Our first feature interview is going to be with Mike LaRosa. He's the co-founder of Agora RDM. And we're going to take a look at co-working spaces. So we're going to answer the question, what are they, how they work and how they make money. We're also going to address why they've grown so much in popularity over the last several years. Chances are 10 years ago, you hadn't heard of a co-working space, uh, maybe outside of Regis where you could rent offices and that sort of thing. But uh, the more popularized version now of co-working spaces, chances are you probably hadn't experienced or seen one 10 years ago. But in the last few years, they've really exploded. So we're going to explore that a little bit more with Mike LaRosa, the co-founder of Agora RDM. We're also going to talk to one of our correspondents, Elmer Gordado, to get a sense of how multi-use facilities switch over from one event to another. So we hear all the time about how arenas go from hosting a hockey match to a concert to a basketball game. How do these venues do that? What's the planning that goes in? What kind of uh, technology is involved? And what's the strategy for how to best tackle this practice? So we're going to talk to Elmer Gordado about that. One of our other correspondents, Sam Mosier, is going to perform the interview. And then finally, we're going to talk to Yair Goldberg. He's the Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Utron, and they do automated parking services. So it's one of those things where you pull your car into a specific spot, and then the system takes your car and parks it somewhere else. He's going to say that it saves space. It's a really valuable amenity to uh, patrons and to uh, people that live maybe in apartment buildings or high-rise buildings, things along those lines. And he says it's going to be the future of parking. It's really going to revolutionize how we do the parking space and parking systems. So it's a really exciting development that we're seeing in that area. He's also going to compare it to something else that you and I use on a pretty regular basis. So you're going to want to hear that as well. All of that is coming up on the show today. So make sure you stick around for that. Again, thank you for joining us for this second episode of the Building Management Podcast. Without further ado, let's get to that first interview with Mike LaRosa, the co-founder of Agora RDM, talking about co-working spaces. All right, joining me now on the podcast is Mike LaRosa. He's the co-founder of Agora RDM, and he has his Bachelor of Science in Tourism from uh, in Tourism Sciences from uh, George Mason. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. When when people say co-working space, what are they what what are they referring to? What what exactly does that mean, co-working space? Well, it, uh, in the year 2018, as we almost are in 2019, uh, it, it's kind of a. a, a a definition or a description to cover a matter of all different types of spaces. You know, uh, in 2008, 2009, uh, if you use the word co-working space, what you were more most likely describing was a single location, uh, very community oriented. Um, and now co-working is kind of as descriptive as restaurant. <laughs> you know, uh, you've got drop-in options like Cove in Washington, D.C., where you can pay by the hour. 
Um, and then you've got super high-end luxury options like Bond, which is kind of a, a premium offering. And then you've got kind of like, you know, the Starbucks of the industry, which is like WeWork, where it's uh, just kind of private offices, shared, you know, serviced office space. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned some of the different ways that uh, maybe some of the different payment structures and ways that people can uh, can go about using these spaces. What are some different models for how co-working spaces have really dove in and, and, and become profitable? Well, I mean, it's no secret that uh, profitability comes from private office rental. That's really the the, the money maker. Uh, the money is really not made in selling individual flex, you know, drop in membership um, options. That said, uh, you know, there's a lot of different concepts out there that have been created to address a need. Right? More often than not, the founder uh, had a problem and, and was trying to solve it. Um, so take a look at DeskPass, for example. You know, they're in 10 cities, but they don't have their own spaces. They're just a, a booking platform where people can pay a monthly fee, but then use 200 different spaces in all these different cities. They're not always co-working spaces. Um, I actually worked on a project with Second City, um, you know, the world-famous comedy club in Chicago. They've got this beautiful training center that's packed from 4 p.m. till midnight, but during the day, it's empty. And so we very quickly set up a kind of the equivalent of a pop-up co-working space. So um, Second City is just utilizing the space that they already pay for, that they're already, you know, that they have um, to try to, you know, create new revenue streams. So, um, you know, as co-working has evolved, or as we like to say, space as a service has evolved, um, you know, folks are, are identifying a, a slew of different ways to monetize uh, just underutilized space. So it feels like co-working is something that has uh, really exploded recently. I think if you'd mentioned this to me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I don't know that I would have known what you were talking about. But ha have there been changes in the market and some innovations that have really helped push this forward? Um, well, I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, it, it was kind of like the perfect storm, right? If you take a look at all of the kind of uh, economic uh, impacts of the uh a recession starting in 2008 and then you take a look at the development in mobile technology right like people who were laid off or couldn't get hired they just started working for themselves you know we're we're a generation my age you know i'm, I'm almost 34 of side hustles i've got more friends now that have different jobs than have just like a, a single you know employer and so as more folks started working remotely or working on laptops or their their iPhones or smartphones, I, I think you know the the need uh, came from there. To be honest, uh, so just in your in your experience and in your expertise, what have you seen as important elements uh, that are required uh, to make a co working space successful? Um, well, effort, right? Um, effort's really important. A lot of folks that we've uh, interacted with and and met. Uh, think that they're just going to open up a co-working space because WeWork has locations everywhere. How hard can it be, right? They just drop furniture in there and then they just flip the switch on. They they think that if you build it, they will come. Um, you know, really at the end of the day, all you have to have is Wi-Fi and coffee. But that intention really kind of makes makes up the difference and 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 kind of takes care of the rest. If you can identify what type of space. Uh, you are creating 
or what type of space as a service you are providing. Um, that, I believe, is really the first and most important step to being successful. Do you think the biggest mistake that people make is uh, is what you mentioned, just thinking that all you need is some tables, some chairs, and you know, some coffee, flip the lights on, and then just let it go? Is that, is that the biggest mistake people make, or are there other mistakes that you see pretty often? Oh, 100%. I think that is the biggest mistake, because it's also the easiest. Um, it's very easy to tour a couple spaces and uh, kind of copy their design or their layout, do it yourself, and then just open it. Um, what I think people don't necessarily understand or realize is that while, yes, it is inherently a real estate business, the type of real estate that it is, is really hospitality. Uh, you know, really, you need to kind of uh, pattern and kind of follow how hotels, you know, uh, manage their properties um, and how they treat their guests. Uh, there are folks that will always just come in because they just need a meeting room and all they see it as is just a facility for them to, to take a meeting. They'll come in and they'll come out. But majority of people are looking for a connection or some type of um, engagement, right? So you really do have to provide that customer service, uh, uh, put that effort in to make sure that it's a welcoming place. Um, you know, Harvard Business Review earlier this year, did a really fascinating uh, write-up about how co-working isn't about the office space. It's about human interaction. <laughs> you know, most people that are coming to co-working spaces um, originally did so because they needed to find some place to be productive. They were tired of either working in loud coffee shops or they were tired of just staring at all the unfolded laundry sitting on their couch, you know, while trying to work on their, you know, desk shoved in the corner of the dining room, you know. Um, but now people are really coming to, uh, you know, meet new folks, engage, interact, and, and kind of uh, combat that isolation and loneliness that no one could have ever imagined would exist when we first started coming up with the idea of telecommuting. Yeah, and how much has that, uh, has that collaboration aspect uh, become uh, more of a selling point as you've kind of realized that this is a bigger part of, of the industry than maybe you initially thought? Well, for, for the shared workspace operators that are aware of the community that they've fostered, it's an incredibly important part of that sales piece. Uh, because, like I said, uh, you know... Uh, a, a, people can work anywhere, right? Uh, you know, a desk is just a desk, but people want to feel comfortable. They want to feel productive. You can't be productive unless you're in a quote-unquote safe space. The clients that we work with, when, when we go through sales trainings, we do try to hyper-focus on what is their uh, unique kind of uh, value proposition and, and what are those um, extra, maybe uh, intangible uh, benefits that come with the membership. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm curious, what does staffing for a successful and sustainable co-working space look like? Um, so let me just let me just preface this with um, I think I might be a little bit biased. Before I kind of made a left hand turn in my career, um, I used to be a, a store manager and regional training specialist for Starbucks. Um, so I'm incredibly aware of the importance of training and how it affects not only your fellow, um, your other employees, your customers, but also your, your bottom line, right? Turnover and, you know, cost of training. Unfortunately, right now, there is no industry standard or kind of um, even college degree or technical 
certificate for community management. When people search community manager, nine times out of 10, that's still coming up as a social media community manager role where you're kind of like managing an online community of followers or fans. Because this is such a low margin business, if you are a single operator and, you know, just lease your, you know, your single co-working space, you tend to hire cheap and you tend to hire young and you tend to train very quickly. You kind of just drop them at the front desk and you expect them to be able to sell memberships, uh, clean all the dirty mugs out of the kitchen sink, change the toilet paper, uh, also sell, um, you know, sell events and plan events. Um, it's kind of the wild, wild west. And so, uh, you know, we've had to work with clients incredibly, uh, 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 sorry, let me go back. We've had to work with clients where, you know, we had a, a role that was so specific for this co-working space at a hotel in Dubai that I ended up having to recruit a, a woman from Buffalo, New York. So um, I think that in the next three years, we're going to see some major changes going on as it relates to how traditional real estate companies, the big guys, how they're starting to now add community management on as a, a, a traditional management service. So you mentioned changes in the industry and kind of just how you, know, how you imagine that, uh, that role of community manager evolving. What else excites you about changes that could potentially come and innovations that could be coming down the pipeline? Um, well, I mean, there is so many uh, new technologies that are finally kind of hitting the marketplace um, where folks are finally able to kind of move beyond creating their own quote unquote software stack. Um, up until recently, if you wanted to have a very uh, technologically advanced co-working space, it would used to either cost you a ton of money or you had to be a, a genius at uh, coding and, and, and APIs and getting different softwares to talk to each other. I think that, you know, the real estate industry is, is known for kind of being a little old and a little kind of behind uh, the curve when it relates to technology updates and, and kind of evolutions there. Um, the combination of software management systems and now electronic access control systems that can be activated using smartphones. Um, I would say within the next 18 months that there's going to be finally uh, some really affordable options uh, that kind of the every man individual co-working space owner will be able to easily um, deploy. Well, I'm fascinated to see how this continues to grow out from where it is and how it's already come so far just in the last, you know, 10 years or so. I think that uh, this is really an area that we could see things uh, explode even more and become an even more uh, popular thing as things go forward, um, which would obviously be great news for you. Yeah. No, <laughs> listen, when, when I kind of discovered co-working for myself in 2013, I had no idea I where this would take me and, and where the industry would, would go. Um, and so, you know, it w wasn't only until about maybe about two years ago where people were like, Oh yeah, you know, we work or co-working. Like I know someone that that's in there. So it's just exciting now that it's kind of become mainstream 
And so once it becomes mainstream and, and other people see folks doing it, uh, you know, the, the growth is, is far easier to achieve. Yeah, uh, way fewer uh, blank stares when you say you do uh, you work in co-working space. I'm 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 gonna guess. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> and I can even say that now. My parents even know what I do, which, yeah. which is which is kind of a, a claim to fame now. If you're if you're a millennial to be able to say that, but uh, um, no, yeah, I, I think people really get it. Um, that it's not a new idea. Like that. That's the thing. Don't forget, like Regis, the you know the traditional serviced office provider they've mm-hmm. been around for 30 years right right, right. um but it's just it's exciting to see how you know this the iphone and smartphones impacted transportation like uber did um it's impacting how people work and so um you know it's just people realize that if they have assets or empty building space or just underutilized space there's now tools out there to monetize it just like you would if you had an empty apartment and you're putting it on Airbnb. That is uh, it's pretty exciting and uh, really, really good to see as far as the advancement in co-working space. He is Mike LaRosa. He's the co-founder of Agora RDM, as his parents now know as well. Mike, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Mike LaRosa for joining us on the podcast today. That's going to be the first part of a continuing series that we're going to do on co-working spaces, just exploring the ins and outs of those. So look for more of that coming in the future from Mike and others at Agora RDM. Coming up next is our conversation with Yair Goldberg. And if you've noticed, we've started to revolutionize some of the ways that we do parking and parking garages and that sort of thing. The first such innovation that I noticed was I was at a place called Nebraska Furniture Mart here in North Texas. And I know that there are several of these around the country, but uh, at at Nebraska Furniture Mart, it's the biggest furniture store that you've ever seen. I was completely overwhelmed the first time I stepped in. But the first innovation I noticed really occurred in the parking garage. My wife and I were trying to find a parking place, and I'm sure maybe you've seen these in some other places. I know some airports have them, but it was the first time I'd really seen this, was that hanging over each particular parking place was a little light, and the light would shine green if there was no car in the space, and red if there was a car in the space. It was really fascinating to me. i just never seen anything like it. It's the first time I'd really seen some kind of improvement to the way that we do parking. And as a forgetful person who uh, doesn't know his left from his right very well at all, I frequently lose my car when I uh, park in big parking lots or in parking garages. I get off on the wrong floor. I do all kinds of... Uh, you know, dumb things like that on a pretty regular basis. So I could really use some help in the innovation in the parking world. Well, uh, what Yair Goldberg is going to join us to talk about, first of all, he's the executive vice president of sales and marketing at Utron, and they work in the world of automated parking services. So He's going to explain how these parking services work and the value that they provide both to building owners and also to patrons. So it's going to be very, very interesting uh, to hear from him. I'm really excited to get more into this conversation and to talk more about how automated parking services could be the future of parking and could help solve some of my parking dilemmas. So without further ado, let's get to that interview with Yair Goldberg coming up next on the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. Right now on the Building Management Podcast, I'm talking to Yair Goldberg. He's the Executive Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Utron. And today we're talking about automated parking systems. Uh, Yair, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are absolutely welcome. Thank you for uh, sharing your expertise with us today. Uh, now, you've worked in this business now for uh, over 20 years, um, just in this industrial automation development and implementation of automated parking solutions. Uh, so you've seen a good amount of innovation over the years in this particular industry. Let's just talk uh, and start off by talking about how these automated parking garages work. Yeah, great. First of all, you know, we're living through very exciting times and automated parking is, is definitely part and maybe leading the way in that excitement. And, and the concept behind it is providing a valet system without the valet. So you basically pull up to an entry point, which is typically the size of a two-car garage, where you simply position your vehicle as easy, as simple as surface parking. Uh, and you have a system that uh, measures the vehicle, makes sure that you fit within the garage and guides you to the stop position. At that point, you simply turn off the motor, take the keys with you, go outside the uh, uh, bay room and activate the system, which could be done uh, through an app or through swiping a fob or a card, or if this is a transient application, you uh, simply push the button and get a ticket like you would in any other parking operation. At that point, you as a driver, you're gone. That's it, uh, easy and simple. The uh, system at that point basically uh, combines horizontal and vertical conveying devices or robots, if you'd like, to load the vehicle and take it away from the entry point to the storage or the parking position, which could be above uh, that level, below that level, uh, doing that swiftly, uh, quickly, and very efficiently. When you come to retrieve your vehicle, you're doing exactly the opposite. Use your app, call the car, pay your ticket, and you wait uh, a short number of minutes, and the car comes back to you. So you're really enjoying all the uh, benefits of the valet parking, and as I mentioned before, just without the valet. But how much, uh, how would this benefit, uh, let's say, the bu buildings and facilities manager as they're building a, a new structure, perhaps? What's the benefit to them? How would you sell them on, uh, this is a good idea for the structure that you're building? So the, there, as, as you mentioned, there's many benefits to this. And, and let's start with the uh, developer. So uh, the basic behind automated parking is that we save space. We save a lot of space. Uh, by eliminating all the turning radiuses, the ramps, all the clearances for people to be able to walk within the structure, we're basically able to uh, fit in the same parking capacity anywhere uh, between half and sometimes even third of the volume that conventional parking would require. So for the developer, if you have a small lot that you're developing that couldn't fit uh, the conventional parking that would be either required or desired by the developer, uh, automated parking comes and provides a solution. Now you, you had a problem, now you have the solution in the form of automated parking. Another um, direction that the solution for the uh, developer could take is that if you um, save space to the point where you can take that space and use it for more units, residential, rental, or commercial uses that increase the revenue to your space and, and improves your return on investment. So that's from the developer standpoint. When you look at the architects, the automated parking basically gives them a tool in hand that provides them a lot of design flexibility. Typically, you know, parking is, is 
let's call it the uh, the the least least desired portion of the design process of any any real estate development. Uh, but suddenly, automated parking makes it a tool that allows you to deliver a, a superior user experience. So now parking is not just an afterthought, but it's part of the design of the flow and the journey that the users uh, go through when they come in and out from the building. So it's a very powerful tool to have a superior design and a superior uh, user experience. Yeah, it's almost uh, shifting the thinking away from parking being something that's a necessity into uh, it's now an amenity that uh, certain uh, places can offer, uh, you know, this, this ability to, to be able to do it this way that's so convenient for customers. It's a, it's a really interesting concept. Uh, are currently standing, are, are pre-existing parking garages able to be retrofitted um, to, uh, to be able to take on this, this technology, or is it just in new structures? There are solutions out there that could uh, be used to retrofit existing garages, but the reality is that uh, many of the benefits of automated parking go away when you have an existing structure, uh, and it's in many cases very hard to uh, financially justify that, that retrofit. Uh, so in reality, uh, the, uh, the use of a new construction is, is probably where you would find most, if not all, automated parking systems. Um, if, if you don't mind that I go back to uh, your comment about parking as amenity, I think that's uh, something very, very important uh, uh, that goes hand in hand with automated parking. We as, as users have become so accustomed to have so much control and so much information at the tip of our fingers, if it's through information that flows to us, if it's uh, through the uh, phones, that we use every day for uh, apps just such as Uber and Waze and any, uh, any other form of apps that provide us information and control over things that we do daily. And it's almost to the point that uh, a friend of mine told me a couple of days ago that we've passed through the uh, information age and now we're in, we're in the experience age. And it got me thinking, you know, as somebody that's involved in this industry, how are we providing this experience and how are we putting the user experience in the focus of this? And this is exactly what, what we're doing at Utron and this goes hand in hand in what you said about an amenity. How are we designing and delivering a parking system that is an experience that considers the type of user, the uh, journey that they go through the building and at the end of the day allow the owner of that building to list parking as, as one of their amenities. Absolutely. And uh, can you foresee a day where these just become the standard, where these become the norm, and we kind of replace the outdated parking garage? Yes, definitely. And, and in a way, if you think about it, it's similar to the uh, revolution that the elevators uh, provided for uh, buildings. Nowadays, nobody even thinks if they put an elevator in the building, right? It's a given. Uh, and in a way, uh, the industry is trying to do the same. And if you think about it, it goes strongly hand in hand with the future of uh, car as a service and the way we're going to be uh, consuming or using vehicles in the future. So the automated parking systems have a lot of synergy and go hand in hand with the autonomous vehicle, uh, with providing solutions that allow your vehicle to drop you uh, and then go park itself in a automated parking system that's maybe located outside the expensive downtown areas 
um, and providing a solution for car as a service for cars, auto autonomous vehicles that are on routes and are uh, need a place to come in and charge or park at off-peak hours in, in small, even micro pockets of uh, parking spaces along that route. So it's a it's a very interesting um, direction that that the transportation and the parking industry is taking. This kind of just came to me, and I, I want to jump back to something you said about it saving space. Uh, this you would have to assume that at a certain point this would catch on in crowded cities like New York, where there's not a ton of space left to to build more structures. But if you can be more economic with your space, then uh, this would certainly have to be viewed as a as a major win for a, a city like say New York or something along those lines. That's that's true, and you know sometimes it's uh, easier to to justify uh, these sort of systems in such places, but the uh, benefits and the savings are the same all over the place. Uh, we have a couple of projects that we're doing in in Houston that just by the benefits that uh, they provide, they allow the development of uh, next door sites into a bigger, better development that. Uh, provides the required return on investment. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a landlock or a place like uh, New York or Los Angeles in order to justify that. Um, it has more to do with the development, the uh, specifics of it, and also the, the vision of the developer. Well, I got to say, I'm pretty excited for the future and uh, would love it if this became the new elevator uh, that just became the norm everywhere, like uh, like what you said. That sound, that's a really great comparison, and that's something that uh, really excites me for the future. So, Yair Goldberg, thank you so much for joining me for the Market Scale Building Management Podcast today, sir. It's my pleasure, and again, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Yair Goldberg. I found it to be really informative. And one of the points that he made that really drove it home for me was that comment about uh, comparing automated parking services with elevators. Because if you think about it, elevators at one point were incredibly innovative and they weren't the standard and they weren't in every building the way that they are nowadays. Well, it's easy to think of a day now where automated parking services could be the same way. What if those become the norm and we just become used to having those and you think, I can't imagine the way that people did it before these existed. That's uh, kind of how I was thinking about it, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So great comparison there by Yair Goldberg. I learned a lot from that interview just there, and I hope you did too. Coming up next is a bit of a fun feature between two of our correspondents. Sam Mosier is going to interview Elmer Gordado. Now, Elmer works in two different venues in Kansas City, Missouri. And they're going to talk about the challenges presented when one event is over and you got to switch over and move to the next event. So what happens when you have a ballet and then you got to switch over and do a rock concert or something along those lines? I know there's a music venue here in Dallas-Fort Worth where I live where they will do a concert and then the next night they might have a boxing tournament or something like that. And so the venue has to switch over really quickly. So what are some of the logistics that go into that? Uh, how do you manage a team to make sure that everything gets done? Who handles that sort of thing? So Elmer's going to share his expertise on this topic for this next feature in the Market Scale Building Management Podcast, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'm your host, Sam Mosier, and today, Elmer Guardado joins us to talk about how venues transition between events. He knows the cycle of an event venue well, setup and preparation, execution, teardown, repeat. It's no easy task, but after working as a sound engineer, production assistant, and stage crew member for venues in Columbia, Missouri, he's seen the cycle plenty of times. Elmer, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing great, Sam Mosher. How are you? I'm doing well. So uh, I think the elephant in the room between us to kind of address is before we get into the conversation that we both know each other. Right. We're both, uh, we both work for MarketScale. And this is a very serendipitous opportunity where I am a qualified person to talk about one of these topics, which is rarely the case. <laughs> yeah, it just happened to work out very well. I mean, you have plenty of experience working in this field. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I do when I'm not recording podcasts and interviewing people. So Elmer, in your words, what does it mean to flip a venue? So flipping a venue is when we turn it from one thing to the other, right? And sometimes this means turning it back to our default setting. But most of the time, right, the complicated part is flipping it to X, whatever that variable is, right? Whatever that show that's coming in tonight is. And sometimes this could be, you know, in a six, eight hour ordeal, or sometimes it's just a two hour ordeal. But it, it flipping a venue, when, when we see that on, on our to-do list for the day, we know that we have to turn it from what it is right now to something else. And sometimes if like if the show went really late and there's nothing going on in the venue the next morning, we might not flip it that night, right? But then the next morning we're coming in and flipping it to whatever's next. So that that's what flipping a venue is, right? It's, it's changing it from something to another thing. And, and it sounds a lot simpler than it really is, but you know that includes lighting, that includes stage dimensions, that includes any hanging fixtures, any like audio thing that needs to get worked on, any... Sometimes it's as simple as like setting risers. So it can mean a lot of things, right? But at its core, it really is just going from one to the other. I see. I mean, it, as expected, it sounds like as complicated as it sounds transitioning a venue between shows that you've worked on, such as pop concerts for Jesse McCartney and then ballet performances from the Moscow Ballet with the great Russian Nutcracker. What are the, so before we get into the differences between, like you said, those traveling shows and things that are a bit more local, what are the similarities across, what's the, is there any formula to a venue flip? I guess the formula, if anything, like what you're repeating is the flip, right? The interesting thing is that, and this is a funny thing that like, you know, a show starts at 7 p.m., it goes to 9 p.m. or, or whatever the, the hours are, but I've done loadouts where the show's at 7 p.m., and we're starting at 7 a.m., you know, and we're working all the way through. You get a lunch break at some point, and sometimes there's times where you're just idly by, but you're always aware, and that's the consistent thing. It's it's the flip that it's going to happen before a show and after a show. Nothing else is for sure, but what is for sure is that at the end of the day, the house has to return to its standby mode, and at the beginning of the day, it has to turn into something else. And, and you know, you brought up two different things, or, or we can eventually talk about the differences. But even between something like uh, the Jesse McCartney show, which was I did like a year ago, and then the Moscow Ballet, which I just did this holiday season, there's still some similarities where, like, okay, we have to bring in our pipes from the ceiling, right, where all our lights and, and, and curtains hang. But we're going to get a different set of order for – or different kinds of lights even, right? For example, the Jesse McCartney show had people, they brought in their own lights, right? Which is very, very common for concerts in general, right? Because they have a show that they have set up and built from scratch to to thematically pair with the music or whatever. And then the Moscow, the Moscow Ballet is no different than that, right? But instead of like maybe bringing in their own lights, they definitely brought in their own curtains, right? And we just built the specifications that they ordered light-wise. So I guess there's not that many you know specific similarities but the the big similarities are are those right that like you're always going to have to flip at the beginning you're always going to have to flip at the end 
and somewhere in the middle, like there might be certain tasks that you know how to do. You know, you know how to, you know, put lights on a pipe correctly and safely. And that's consistent throughout. But what lights you're putting up, rarely consistent, right? The order, definitely never consistent. So to break down the differences, there's a lot to tackle there. Let's start with, say, staff size. What's the team look like at the venues you work at? Are they static? Are you bringing in people depending on what type of event it is so a little bit of both right it it's definitely for certain like for example when we have like an orchestra or a jazz band or something where various instruments are going to be mic'd up and they need to be mixed out we'll bring in like our head audio engineer right to mic everyone up and put out a final master mix that's going to be outputted later that night i see so then when it comes to staff size after that how do you who goes about coordinating this staff so that it's as goes as efficiently as possible in organizing these events in the because as you said i'm sure the time frame is slim on some of these yeah yeah so you know that's the interesting thing is that uh, uh usually when you have a good house staff it's not it's a non-problem right because you're not worried no one's going to be standing idly by no one's going to be completely doing the wrong thing or or, or, or something like that right And you also hope that everyone was trained properly, which in our case, I think everyone really is. We all feel very much, we all have like our strengths, but all across the board, we can all mostly do everything. And it ends up just being like, okay, their staff's here and just do something. Like, you know what needs to be done usually in the sense of like, okay, we're hanging up lights. That's like a, that could be a two, three person job and it'll be done faster or something. So the biggest thing is just making sure you're doing something. At, at the beginning, it, it the jobs are way more easy where it's like, we need the pipe down. Someone go climb up the fly rail and bring that down. Or, you know, we need to go get X, Y, and Z from downstairs and pull those lights up and that'll be done, right? Or we sometimes, for both of our stages, actually, in both of these venues I work at, they the dimensions of the stage can actually change too. Where like the, the flooring panels will get dropped and we'll put new legs up and a new kickboarder up. And, you know, that's sometimes something that just has to be done before or after or during, just depending on on what the workload is. So it it definitely, you know, varies a lot in that case, too. And there is a general order of events and a general structure of of general structure of who should be doing what. But for the most part, an efficient staff is just always doing something right. That makes sense. And so, like you said, you work at two different venues, with those being Jesse Hall Auditorium and the Missouri Theater in Columbia, Missouri. And you see a variety of events from orchestras to uh, to stage productions and comedians. And so when it comes to the differences in these type of acts, how does a, a national touring performance such as the the ballet to something that's a bit more local, how does that differ in the way it's set up? Is the things that are touring coming in on a bus, is that easier because they kind of have it to a routine? Yeah, it's definitely fascinating, right? It, it's I wouldn't necessarily say it's easier because those shows are the most difficult. Usually, the biggest shows, right, are these these ones that can afford this kind of tour. But it, it's interesting because they do have a set plan, right? Like the most recent show I, I worked on a week ago was the uh, Army Jazz Band came into town, and they're in the army, so they're all very efficient and basically didn't need us, right? So in that case, it was super easy. They knew how to handle their own stuff. They wanted to handle their own stuff. And we were basically mostly on standby waiting to help things. And and keep in mind, we had already flipped the house at this point, right? So we put in the right lights and we put in the right fixtures and we put in the right backdrop that they wanted and completely, you know, set the right dimensions to the stage and everything and set up spotlights. But 
then on another show where you might think it, it could be the easiest thing in the world, it could end up being the most complicated thing if just the person that's using the space is sometimes difficult. And that's another thing. Like you're working with strangers every night. You have your own crew that, you know, you trust and you're comfortable with, but every single night, complete strangers and it's their, you know, whether they're touring and it's like, you know, a little monotonous to them at some point, it's still a bigger night for them than it is for me, right? Like I'm just at work for them. Like they're doing something, you know, theoretically something brave on stage, something interesting, something dynamic. So that that's kind of the other game you're playing, right? When you're on a, on a crew staff and you're flipping houses and, and you're loading in and loading out shows is you are working with different personalities constantly. And you have to be aware that, yeah, you see one of these every, every day of the week, basically, but you can't look at it that way, right? Because you have to look at each one as a new valuable person, right? That you want to help foster to, to create that special moment that they need that night. So that's a whole other dynamic that ends up playing a role that you sometimes don't expect. And sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative, but it's definitely an important one. And, and when it comes to flipping a house, it sometimes you are doing even that with strangers, right? Depending on if something changes last minute. And that can be a little bit more stressful because you are doing a lot of lifting and changing and a lot is going on. But again, these are people that you, you at, at a certain point, you just have to trust that they also know what they're doing and uh, hope for the best. So between your experience working with these different types of productions and with each setup being unique in its own way to make sure that, like you said, it goes as efficiently and just as they imagined as possible. And now with two years under your belt, what have you seen change in the way production go on? Have there been any, any, any innovations that make your job easier or anything you hope to see in the future? I was thinking about that, right? Like what, what are the things that could be made better, made more efficient? And the funny thing is that I think so much of this job just cannot cannot evolve really because certain things just need that human touch still right and especially like we're not going to get a machine that is bringing out you know bringing things onto a stage like what am i describing a conveyor belt right like it's there, there's certain things that like it's just more efficient if people are doing it and it's faster and also like you know there's a specific way we coil up cables there's a specific uh set of lights we're using in a specific set of dimmers and a specific set of color gels that honestly there's, there's no innovation I guess in that space that could really make that job easier we are seeing innovations in, in other ways right where all all the lighting rigs in almost every big theater now are being switching are switching if they haven't changed already to led whereas it was more before it was more a traditional like lamp-ish light that that really felt rudimentary and 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 it has its own like special like dynamic, but with LED, it's just so much more cheaper. It, it consumes less energy and it's just, you get color spectrums that were unimaginable before. So we do see innovation in certain areas, but even at the end of the day, like the best way to pull a curtain is still probably if someone just does it because I'm sure there's machines for it that do it and do it like at a consistent pace. But is it worth investing in that when someone can just do that for five seconds so it's interesting. I think it is one of those spaces that I don't know how much more uh, innovation, whether if it's like a digital thing or, or a specific piece of hardware that can make our jobs easier. Um, but we are seeing it, you know, penetrate certain things. And obviously shows get crazier and bigger and more efficient. Um, 
in, in even just how they're set up, right? People can custom design certain things to make sure they fit perfectly for when they're traveling. So it, it, things are getting more complicated and more interesting, but I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, we're seeing much innovation in that space really. Well, that's good to know. As someone speaking for myself who loves theater, it's always good to hear that there's always going to be a need for that, that human touch to bring the magic to the stage. I always like hearing that. Well, Elmer, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and learning more about the art of the venue flip. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning about the art of the venue flip from Sam Mosier and Elmore Gordado there. That is all we have for this episode of the Market Scale Building Management Podcast. Thank you to all of my guests today, Mike LaRosa, Yair Goldberg, Elmer, and Sam. Thank you so much for uh, helping make this episode happen. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, remember there's more great content just like this over at marketscale.com where we have more podcasts and written content there for you to consume and enjoy. And also we'd appreciate it if you shared this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, anybody that you think might enjoy learning more about these topics we would definitely appreciate it if you sent this their way as well we'll be back soon of course with another episode of the market scale building management podcast but until then i've been your host tyler kern thank you so much for listening